Hello and welcome back to the Tales of Two Cities podcast. From the dark but cozy studio of UC Berkeley's journalism school, this is Rosa Ismaili. And I am Juliette de Guénroux. We'll be your host for this week. This episode's theme is about what it's like to be locked up. We'll hear from some young people who were formerly incarcerated about how they readjusted to life after their release. I felt like I didn't have a voice, so I didn't ever really said much. You know, I fought my own battle and that's it. We'll also learn about the love of reading and the books that have sustained people while they were in prison. I read about Malcolm X. He said he copied the whole dictionary from A to Z. We'll hear about another kind of lockup, about people who go out in the middle of the night to trap rodents for science. Totally tubular body, really short tail, no ears to really see. We'll learn about a Richmond animal shelter where activists are raising money to make repairs to the dog kennels. Because the dogs are bored and often grow anxious, they have been tearing apart their surroundings. There's just some of them will start chewing, scratching, breaking. And we'll talk with Tara Lawyer from Impact Justice about how providing housing to people recently released from prison improves their chances of readjustment. That's all coming up on this episode of the Tales of Two Cities podcast. Our first story today comes from a reporter, Ricky Rodas, who visited the Courage office in Oakland. This group mentors formerly incarcerated young people. They spoke with Ricky about how they are getting their lives back on track. Oh, you're here for the... Oh, okay, today. Come on in. Okay, let me move... Oh, Luis, okay, yeah, we got money in the full house. I felt like I didn't have a voice, so I didn't ever really said much. You know, I fought my own battle, and that's it. But now that I'm in a better place, and, you know, and I know I got people here for support, it's a lot easier to help fight the rest of the battle instead of just my own. That's 18-year-old Hayden Bellew. We're sitting in a small room at an Oakland nonprofit, along with four other young adults. Hi, my name is Sochi Larios. <laughs> my name is Tayana Harris. Isaiah Coleman. Luis Quinones. They're all part of programs run by Community United for Restorative Youth Justice, better known as Courage. The group works with young people affected by incarceration. The five of them agreed to sit down with us for a roundtable discussion about life after being locked up. All of them said they come from neighborhoods where crime and incarceration are frequent issues. Here's Isaiah Coleman, who's from Oakland, and then Sochi Larios, who's from Hayward. You hear shootings every night, police coming by every night, you know, um, drive-bys. It's a lot, a lot, a lot, like incarceration, homelessness. I almost got raped um, three times. The five of them have experienced what it's like going in and out of the system. All of them have previously been incarcerated at a juvenile hall or an adult facility. Here's Luis Quinones from San Francisco and then Hayden Bellew, who previously lived in Arizona. I was direct filed as an adult at 14 years old and I was in the maximum security unit in juvenile hall with 18 year olds, 19 year olds. And I was 14, I was the smallest motherfucker that was in there, you feel me? When I was 15 years old, I was direct filed on in Arizona for attempted arson, my own belongings. Now they are working towards reforming the justice system. One project is the Dream Beyond Bars Fellowship. Working with Courage and another Oakland nonprofit called Urban Peace Movement, 
They conducted a study of young people and families affected by the prison system. Because we went through it, I'm pretty sure we have some solutions or I'm pretty, sh I'm pretty sure we should be the people sitting in power overseeing these juvenile halls. I'm pretty sure we should be the ones creating policy. The Dream Beyond Bars reports addresses some of the problems that young people have after being incarcerated, like finding jobs or a place to live. They also found that many young people wish they had post-release options, like taking part in community programs, instead of being required to wear ankle monitors or live in group homes. Here's Tiana Harris from Oakland. It's like a repetitive thing, like it's like GPS, group home, da, 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 GPS, group home. It's like the same thing like with every kid and I just see the repetitive and and when you when I was young and I was going I was in and out of juvenile hall, me and all my friends we was had different cases but was going through the same thing. So and it's like what da, 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 da. and then it was some people who cases was worse than mine and they was was off or something like that. Wasn't even on GPS. The study also examined the effects of sentencing teenagers as adults. One of the group's ongoing concerns is about racial profiling, especially if it leads to more minority teenagers being arrested and given adult sentences. Here's Luis Quinones. You got a black person, a white person, and a brown person. They all commit the same crime. The black person's gonna get way more time. The brown person's gonna get, you know, more time than the white person. Every circumstance is different, however, if that's the case, you know, people want to acknowledge that, why not take that into consideration when you're sentencing, you know, these black and brown kids to, to adult sentences. The group members say that their own experiences after being released were difficult. Here's Hayden and Luis again. When I came out, I felt developmentally, I still felt like I was this 15-year-old kid. When you sick a kid in an adult jail, it's even worse. I was stuck. I couldn't get health insurance for a long time because juvenile justice system was holding my medical information and wasn't trying to release the, the proper stuff. Today, they have different career aspirations, but all of them are rooted in the desire to give back and inspire. Luis wants to work in the arts. I want to make music that speaks about my experiences, those around me. Once I collect revenue, once I'm on a bigger platform, that's when I'm going to start promoting the change. That's when I already got people listening to what I say, so they'll be more inclined to change. And the others are considering work in the law or in government. If I can use the law to help change these kids' lives, then that's what I want to do. So that's why I want to go to law school. I'm trying to do that is, you know, I'm going into juvenile hall and letting the youth find their voice and um, being a commissioner, being present in those meetings. Business, if yes. I want to be a lawyer, I don't know. It's like if I want to work PJIO, juvenile hall, it's just like I, I don't, I really don't know. While 21 year old Tayana isn't exactly sure what she wants to do, her friend Sochi is certain she's already successful. I know Ty is an amazing mom, that's for sure. Thank you. And I've never seen a mother care about her child so much, specifically at her age. So I just want to give it to you, Ty, that you definitely are solid by putting Jelani first. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> like, that's so for sweet. sure. Thank you, man. For the Tales of Two Cities podcast, I'm Ricky Rodas. Our next story is from reporter Sabine Brzezina, with the help of Ricky Rodas. Sabine sat down with two people who say they learned a lot while in prison, thanks to books they came across in a prison library. Richmond native Edward Williams got his degree in an unlikely field of study. 
I started going to prison when I was 18 years old. And I just told you all I was 78. So that's been a long time. Yeah. So I have a PhD in this. We meet in a conference room at the Richmond Arts Center. His childhood friend Vernon Robinson is sitting right next to him. Like Williams, Robinson has spent a significant part of his life incarcerated. And like Williams, he talks about prison as a place of higher education. I viewed prison as a womb-like environment, a place where I could nurture, develop, grow, and I will be delivered from. Robinson lost his 50s to incarceration, but both men say that what they got out of their time in prison was an entirely changed outlook on who they are. People who are in prison think that they are this, that, or the other. I'm a robber, or I'm a killer, I'm a drug dealer, I'm a hustler, I'm a con man, I'm a this, I'm a that. This is what, how they identify themselves. And incarcerating themselves in that idea, being imprisoned in that idea, is what leads to the shackles. Becoming very well-read was a significant part of redefining themselves. Williams said before he was incarcerated, he barely knew how to read. But what he saw in prison made him want to change that. Back in the 60s, people used to bring books out on the yard, put them down, and other people would come to and trade, they would trade books or buy books. And that really impressed me as a young person. I was in my 20s, and that really impressed me to see that. He was particularly inspired by the story of the civil rights activist Malcolm X. I read about Malcolm X. He said he copied the whole dictionary from A to Z. And he said, I was amazed with all the words just in the A section. So Williams got himself a dictionary and a thesaurus and got in the habit of picking them up regularly. My dictionary and, and my thesaurus was right there by my, my bunk, where if I heard somebody use a word that I didn't know, I'm, I'm going to grab my dictionary. And, and when I opened my dictionary, I put a red mark by that word, a little red mark by that word, you know. And so I went through the dictionary like that, you know, for 30 years. Soon he started collecting books and asking everyone to leave him theirs once they got out. Robinson's story is a little different. He says he was always a gregarious person. He also had a great desire to surround himself with knowledge. So while I was in prison, I had a variety of books constantly shipped into me, and I read everything that I could find in the library that interested me. And then I would strike up conversations, or I would share the books so I could start informal conversations along these thought lines to keep my mental atmosphere on a certain level and to try to see how effective I could be in helping someone else. Reading wasn't just about passing time. It meant acquiring skills that, in a way, allowed both men to stay alive. Because a guy told me once, he said, prison with solitude gives you time to crystallize your introspection. But there's a phrase, he says, to free the imprisoned splendor. I believe it may have been Robert Frost or may have been Thoreau. I'm not sure in my reading. They read books that nourished their minds. I read history yeah. and, 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 and uh, psychology, yeah. sociology, and uh, I came across this quote where it said, the mind is its own place, mm. and in itself, you can make a heaven of hell, or you can make a hell of heaven. I say, wow, that's deep. I say, so what they're telling me is I can be in heaven in prison. Exactly. Now that they are both out of prison, 
They are working to change the lives of others. They give speeches and look for people who might make use of their insights. Williams works for an organization called the Reentry Success Center that helps people with their transition from prison back into the real world. I'm a firm believer that there's a, a untapped pool, a whole full reservoir of potential inside of these prison systems. Both of them still love books. In fact, Robinson bought a pile of the ones he's currently reading to our meeting at the Arts Center. The first one is called The Wisdom of the Heart, and it says Inspiration for a Life Worth Living, and it's by Alan Cohen. And actually what I'm doing with this book is taking each particular thought in the book, and I'm uh, living with it for about a week. There are 52 chapters in this book. So I'll live with this book for a year and just incorporate and dwell on each chapter mm. in the book. Another one is Endurance by astronaut Scott Kelly. And so he recites his whole circumstances of going into Russia, flying up in the, the uh, um, Sputniks and things, and living on the space station, what it took, and how you have to endure going through that. But what really impacted me about the book is the process of re-entry. Because the, having to come from outer space back into the Earth and everything is a very, very uh, trying, strenuous journey. And it's a lot of friction. And I equated that with trying to re-enter back into society after you've been gone for so long, you know, in prison. Both men can be found through the website reentrysuccess.org. For the Tales of Two Cities podcast, I'm Sabine Berzny with reporter Ricky Rodas. Our next two stories feature animals. For people who study birds, field observations can be pretty straightforward. All you need is a good pair of binoculars for bird watching. But for people who study mammals, getting close to an animal usually means setting traps. And today, some people from UC Berkeley will show us how it's done. I'm in a class at UC Berkeley called Natural History of the Vertebrates. For over a hundred years, this class has taught students about nearly every bird, amphibian, reptile, and mammal you can find in the Bay Area. Come on over, you guys. I got a lot of sleep, so. We've already done a lot of bird watching this year, so on this Saturday morning, we'll be getting up close with the warm fuzzies. That means voles, rats, and mice. So this is uh, Point Pinole. Who's been to Point Pinole before? Nope, one, maybe? Yeah, brand new, excellent. Today we're visiting Point Pinole in Richmond to practice our identification of rodents. By the end of the semester, we'll need to know 16 different species. It's the former dynamite-making factory area. Um, they had a massive explosion here that was a huge dramatic incident that shut the whole thing down and just turned it over to preserve, preserve land. And Rodents are usually hidden in their nests, so students set traps the night before. They use oats as bait and pad the inside of the trap with cotton balls to keep them warm until we can handle them. But before we start, roll call. Colin? Here. Excellent. Cannon? Here. Caroline? Here. All right, good to go. Before we check our first trap, we're already seeing clues that rodents have been here. There's a system of tunnels weaving all through the marshy grass. This is going to start with trap number 42. We check our first trap, and inside is a brown furry critter, about the size of your fist. It's a California vole. That's in the order Rodentia and family Chrysididae, if you were curious. Totally tubular body, really short tail, no ears to really see. Come on, what is it? It's a vole. Yeah, it's Microtus californicus. Now it's our turn to start checking the traps. Student Gino Grush finds one to open. So these are Sherman traps, and they're small. 
The metal box trap is about a foot long and a couple inches tall. He can just see a little brown ball of fur curled up inside some cotton on the far end of the box. The way we catch them is by putting this clear bag over the top of the trap and holding it upright so that the rodent is at the bottom. And then so quickly, we, we make sure the trap is open and then flip it over with a like thrusting movement so that the momentum pushes him down into the bag so he ends up unharmed in a quick manner. I want to kind of make sure that it's held open while I, while I do this. This one's a little sensitive. So like that. Okay, let's weigh him. About 61. Now the hard part, taking the rodent out of the bag. It's called scruffing because you need to reach in and grab the vole by the scruff of its neck without getting so, nipped. Uh, does anyone else want to? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing that. <sighs> okay. Well, basically what we're doing is now we scruffed them on the nape of the neck, um, which is a really nice, convenient spot. Um, it's a lot of loose skin. doesn't harm them whatsoever. And so when we hold them, um, they're not able to like turn around and bite us. And also, you know, they stay unharmed. So now we're going to take a ruler and measure um, different parts of it. So we're going to measure the tail length, the the full body length. 50 centimeters for the tail. There's one rodent we're trying not to catch. It's called the salt marsh harvest mouse, and it's an endangered species that lives by the shore at Point Pinole. The mouse is threatened because there's so much coastal development in the Bay Area, and that means marshes, and the pickleweed the mouse loves, often gets destroyed. But at Point Pinole, wetland restoration is underway. The is nine. So the pinna is the ear, ear length. We have over a hundred traps to check, but after about an hour of scruffing and measuring, we finish early. Professor Shabel says this year there were fewer mammals than other years, but he's not entirely sure why. He thinks maybe it was because of the weather, but it isn't necessarily cause to be concerned. He says voles are classic eruptive rodents, meaning their populations can suddenly decline. But for us, this means free time for bird watching. Scout. Mallard. For the Tales of Two Cities podcast, I'm Caroline Champlin. Boobies and allies. How about Pelicanida? For our last story, reporter Julie Cheng visited the Milo Foundation, an animal rescue shelter in Richmond. The shelter has been fundraising to get repairs done inside their kennels so the dogs can be more comfortable while they wait to be adopted. I did see the jacket. Looking very good. You're looking very good, huh, sweet girl? The Milo Foundation is a well-known animal rescue shelter in Richmond. It's been active for over two decades now. So my name is Lynn Tingle, and I'm the director and founder of the Milo Foundation. We are pretty popular. We do have a pretty good track record in getting animals adopted, and we are rescuing the average of seven a day, and we're actually adopting out an average of seven a day, so it all works out pretty well. Surprisingly, all that popularity hasn't been entirely a blessing. All those years of bringing in and adopting out animals has seriously worn down the building. Well, we've probably had 8,000 dogs through here uh, since we started, so that's a big number to have, you know, been impacting on the space. Being cooped up in a small confined space all day would drive anyone crazy, and these dogs are no exception. There's just some of them will start chewing, scratching, breaking. In fact, 
Visitors can see where dogs have scraped or chewed through entire chunks of the wall panels, which are made of fiber-reinforced plastic. And this winter's unusually long, wet season has only made a bad situation worse. When it rains, the dogs don't get out as much. You know, we do get them out on, on walks to have little potty breaks, um, but volunteers and everyone, no one wants to walk dogs that much in the rain. They also jump and hit against the kennel doors a lot. And all that pressure from the jumping has broken a few joints on the kennels. So, um, we realized we really got to fix them. <laughs> Tingle and her team have been tirelessly fundraising to repair some of the kennels inside the shelter. So far, they've raised close to $11,000 and are in the process of securing another 10. They expect the repairs to begin this April, but even after all repairs are completed, the Milo Foundation will continue fundraising for the sake of their furry residents. <laughs> Looking good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, honey, don't shake. Oh, my goodness, she vibrates. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a seven day a week. I pretty much work every day, whether I'm here at the adoption center or at home with my computer, trying to wrestle through all the lists of animals that need rescuing. While the work is never ending, Tingle says her motivation is as strong as ever. I love the animals, but I'm really happy when I see them go off to new homes. That's the best, and that's what keeps me going. For the Tales of Two Cities podcast, I'm Julie Chang with additional reporting by Pedro Cota. When people are released from prison, the first thing they need is a place to go. A home. But that's often a challenge, because some landlords, realtors and roommates don't want to share space with a formerly incarcerated person. An organization from Oakland called Impact Justice is now tackling that problem. They've started a homecoming project to assist people with finding housing. We invited Tara Lawyer to join us in the studio. Hello, Tara. And thank you very much for coming to the Tales of Two Cities podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what the Homecoming Project is? Um, I can start off by saying I am the project coordinator. I work with the Homecoming Project, which is a shared housing model for individuals coming home from prison, going directly into community host homes. These community hosts are individuals throughout Alameda County who are finding that they want to use one of their extra bedrooms in their home to house an individual coming home from long-term incarceration. So let me just catch you there. They come out. What is the reality they usually face? Right. So I think it's, it's pretty difficult for someone who hasn't experienced it to know what it all entails, so that's a good starting point. An individual that is coming home from prison oftentimes is um, having little to no support. I'm specifically speaking about the long-termers. So this is anyone that has served 10-plus years in custody or has served out a life sentence. And so you're given by the state of California a $200 um, gate money, which is what they set you up with. Anything else, you're going to have to rely on community support. But you got to look at it from this standpoint. They're completely starting over. And so to build up their selves and to reintegrate entails a lot more details than many of us realize. You're talking about a California ID, your social security card, your birth certificate. You have no credit because after seven years, it kind of starts all over. And with the population we're dealing with, they're completely, you know, a ghost that has to reestablish themselves, so to speak. 
So what do you mean exactly by a ghost? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, the culture has changed. Um, the cost of living has increased so much. And not to mention long-term incarceration. Most individuals come home with post-incarceration syndrome, which is a little disorienting and causing a lot of anxiety and having to adjust to a fast-paced reality in society. Let's talk a little bit about matching hosts and former inmates. What is the process exactly? Yeah, so while a person is in custody, they can apply for housing through our program. Upon screening and, um, you know, looking at the er- their eligibility criteria, once they are accepted into the program, then we set them up, we share their application with other community hosts whose home is ready and available to receive them. And then we want them to match themselves to each other. And how do you make sure that they're actually going to fit? So we set up a face-to-face meeting. And this is an opportunity for the community host and the participant to really get to know each other and to talk about the details of what the house would look like, what the house rules would be, what are some expectations. Then also to talk about their personality traits, their lifestyle preferences. Um, are they a early riser or are, do they go to sleep late? So that we can really maximize the compatibility and they are choosing each other, and that is kind of why our housing arrangements have been so successful. Okay, so but what is exactly in it for the host? The bonus is that Impact Justice pays the host for housing the participant for six months. This gives the participant an opportunity to save majority of their income in preparation for independent living. I see. Can you describe how a typical host house looks like? Sure. Um, a host house looks like any other house. Um, out here in the community, it's a home that may have a family in it, may have a couple in it, and they have an extra bedroom that is furnished that has accessibility to a bathroom and to a common area and a kitchen to where the participant living there would feel included. Okay, so what happens after they spend some time in the host house? Thanks for asking that. Um, we have to date placed 10 participants into community host homes, three of which have graduated, two of which have opted to stay living in their host home on their own housing terms. So we step out of the equation. Impact Justice no longer is providing the, the participant the housing um, stipend. Um, and they are able to come to their own housing agreement and setting their own rent rates and having the participant live. One of our participants has gone on to live into their own apartment and is continuing independent living. One of the great outcomes that we've seen is every single one of our participants have found employment within two weeks of coming home. Tell us a bit about the everyday struggles they might face that we might not be aware of. So what does it look like to go grocery shopping? What does it look like to come home from work and and cook dinner for yourself? What does it look like to budget out your your finances? These are things that we need hands-on instructions, and they're seeing that through this role modeling type of relationship. And I think that that's key to what this project is doing. An individual can only do as much as they can do. The community has to kind of meet them halfway. Right. For me, I'm formally incarcerated. I served 15 years of a life sentence in Central California Women's Facility, and I experienced firsthand what it was like to be in the community with little to nothing 
the support of my family, but whose hands were tied to help me financially or to set me up. Um, if it wasn't for a lot of my family members, I would have been lost. And a lot of these individuals need extra support to kind of help them guide, guide them through that, you know, and not have that disoriented feeling of I'm out of place when this is their natural habitat, right? Yeah. And what's next? What are your plans for the future? Our goals are pretty lofty. We want to serve 50 people in any given county a year, and that's realistic. And the cost comparison to traditional transitional housing programs far exceeds the cost of what we are doing now. Is there anything else you would like to, to share with us? I just think that it is such an honor to represent the community that I come from. Um, it is a privilege to be able to serve individuals that I know exactly what they're going to through. I know that if I, if there was the homecoming project when I came home, I would just be more and more grateful to be included in a community I thought that I was excluded from. Thank you very much for being here with us. It has been a pleasure. Yes, thank you very much, Tara. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You can learn more about Impact Justice, the homecoming project, and how to get involved at www.impactjustice.org. That's it for this episode of Tales of Two Cities. We hope you enjoyed our episode on being locked up as much as we have. Feel free to get in touch with us and tell us your opinion. Comment on our SoundCloud account or write us on Facebook. Or you can also look us up on our websites, Oakland North and Richmond Confidential. You can even tweet at us. Our Twitter handles are at North Oakland Now and RI Confidential. Our producer this week is Julie Chan. Our music is by Kevin McLeod. You can listen to our podcast on oaklandnorth.net, richmondconfidential.org, and on SoundCloud. And you can always subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I am Julia Duguenro. And I am Rosa Ismailai. Thanks for listening to the Tales of Two Cities podcast.